Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. Uh, my name is Nathan Coleman Lamb, and I am here today with Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hi. I am so sorry to say that we do not have Derek Silva with us today. Normally, I would make fun of him at this time, come up with some, um, you know, silly rejoinder about how Derek doesn't care or isn't committed to the project. But the truth is that Derek is <laughs> not here for the best possible reason. I don't even want to make light of this. You know, he's mm-hmm. out there battling university administrations around labor issues and occupational health and safety issues. So nothing but a standing ovation uh, for Derek from us over here. He wanted to be here. He can't be here for the best reasons. And we miss him. Um, so shout out to you, Derek, uh, even though you're going to be hearing this weeks after it actually happened. Um, so today we are really excited to share with you uh, a conversation with Brittany de la Creta, uh, uh, an incredible sports journalist who is really doing sports journalism the way that sports journalism should be done, mm-hmm. um, not bowing to the sports media complex, uh, not succumbing to the demands of ESPN or um, any other major corporation that exploits athletes uh, through the commodity spectacle that they air. And so it'll be a, it's really a wonderful opportunity for us to talk to them about um, the myriad issues that they cover in their reporting and also, you know, the process of being a sports journalist and being a sports journalist who isn't willing to compromise with the demands of the sport media complex. So we're extremely excited to throw to that interview. Um, and just before we do, let me just plug the show Please follow us on Twitter at End of Sport Pod. Uh, if you are up to it, we would really appreciate it if you supported us on Patreon. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever other platform you get your podcasts on. That supposedly helps um, sort of share the show. And please also just by word of mouth, tell other folks about it if the show is something that you appreciate. Uh, thanks so much. And now to our conversation with Brittany. Brittany de la Creta is an extremely prolific freelance writer whose analyses explore the intersection of sports, gender, culture, and queerness. Having been a former sports columnist for Long Reads and the sports and culture columnist for Bitch Media, their work has appeared in a truly impressive array of outlets that include, but are absolutely not limited to, the New York Times, Sports Illustrated, Vogue, the Washington Post, Teen Vogue, and again, many, many more. Brittany, moreover, recently co-authored the book titled Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League with with, uh, co-author Lindsay D'Arcangelo that will be out in November 2021 and that we will absolutely be linking to in the show notes for listeners to pre-order and get their hands on. Brittany, we've long wanted to have you on the end of a sport and really, truly, always eagerly await your pieces. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So um, as listeners know, we always like to talk amongst ourselves and with other guests about sort of um, how they came to their sports fandom and sort of how they reconcile their, their critical views of sport with the fact that they genuinely like sport for so many different reasons. So we'd love to start off uh, by having you walk us through your own sports fandom and how you became a critical sports journalist. Yeah, totally. Um, I got into sports. I mean, I was an athlete growing up. I did gymnastics and I was a competitive cheerleader um, all the way through 
high school, and my parents run a tennis academy um, in South Florida. And when I was growing up, my dad was one of the top juniors uh, coaches in the U.S. And maybe he still is. I don't know, Dad. Uh, (laughs) I'm not plugged into the tennis world as much anymore. But sports was just sort of always around me. And also my dad, you know, grew up playing baseball and that really is his first love. And so I grew up watching it with him. Um, It was kind of the only thing we did together um, as two people who kept different schedules and often didn't really understand each other. Uh, It was like the one thing that we could do together that didn't feel like there was pressure with it. So I would just sit next to him and watch baseball and he would explain the game to me and tell me about the players. And, um, I, you know, really love the sport. Baseball is really like my first love too, in terms of the sports that I want to watch, but related to your question, I don't cover it anymore, really. And I don't watch it anymore, really. And, um, I don't know. That's a really sad thing. I came into sports writing, covering baseball. Um, I never intended to be a sports writer. I think I always wanted to be, but I thought I couldn't. And part of the reason I thought I couldn't was because I didn't see voices like mine writing about sports. And, um, you know, instead of being like, oh, this is a gap in the market and I can fill it. I was like, oh, this isn't for me. Like no one would hire me. And, you know, someone said to me, like, "Are, are you saying that you can't write about sports because you're like not a guy like because you have a different perspective and it's like oh oh is that what I'm saying Uh, and then it became like a challenge to myself because I'm stubborn Mm -hmm. um to see if this was the thing I, I actually could write about um and I kind of just like elbowed my way in um and yeah I was writing about baseball first and over the course of the first couple of years that I was doing sports writing, I got really disillusioned with men's sports specifically. Uh, it just, and, and major league baseball, really, uh, I think it's really hard to love a sport that feels like most of the players probably like would hate you as a person. Like mm-hmm. I'm queer, I'm trans, I'm, you know, all of these things that I watch being, you know, oh, a player I love just used a homophobic slur on the field. And um, all of these players are being, you know, having domestic violence arrests, and I'm a survivor, like, is this, and it just didn't feel like it was getting better. And it's funny, because when I tell people I'm a sports writer, a lot of people assume that means I'm a beat writer, like I'm in the, the, the clubhouse or the locker room after the game. And I've done that for stories. But it's not, you know, where I uh, do most of my work. But part of the reason I never wanted to be a beat writer stems from when I was covering Major League Baseball. And I was like, I feel like if I got to know the athletes on a personal level, I would never be able to watch the sport again. Like, I feel like if I had to be in a locker room with these guys and see them more in their like natural environment that I would not only feel really unsafe, but I would like, I would hate them. And then I would hate the sport and I don't want to hate this thing that I love. So it was a very intentional shift for me to start focusing more on women's sports, which I always did to some extent. Um, But you know, the WNBA and 
Major League Baseball season run at the same time. And so I never watched the W because I was watching baseball. And several years ago, I just went, you know what? I'm going to watch the W instead. I'm like making this commitment that I'm not going to watch baseball this year and I'm going to watch the W. And it was the best choice I made for myself um, and also I think for my work. Um, The W is just one of the leagues I cover, but um, it's also a place that women's sports generally is a place where these conversations feel really welcome in ways that I don't think they are as much in men's sports. And so I think the other thing about critiquing something is like, if I didn't love it, I wouldn't waste energy. If I didn't care so much about it, I wouldn't put so much thought and effort into trying to point out the ways that sport and sports can be better or the things that they're doing really well that are inspiring and incredible, which I think is, is just as important. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really fascinating. There's so much in what you were saying already. Um, and I, I was going to ask another kind of writing process question, which I'll come back to. But right now, I, I almost I just kind of want to dig into these dynamics you're describing in, in men's and women's sports, um, because and it's a sort of it's an fascinating question to unpack for me, like why those dynamics are so different. Um, now, you know, there are superficial answers, of course, like around masculinity um, and, you know, broader uh the broader sort of identity of of toxic masculinity and then how that filters into sport and produces a locker room culture and climate that is so, you know, abusive, essentially. Um, but nonetheless, there are also ways, right? Like, I mean, we're talking about men's and women's sport. We're talking about capitalist sport here. We're talking about sport driven by fundamentally competitive imperatives um, that can in their own ways produce very toxic dynamics around domination and abuse and the ways in which people engage and interact with one another. Um, So, you know, I'm kind of curious from your perspective, how or why you think that women's sports like the W have been able to develop the sort of cultural differences that you're describing versus something like major league baseball. I don't think Talking about masculinity is surface level. I will say that. Sure. But sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's related. To me, when I look at leagues like the W or, you know, professional women's soccer, um, a, the players themselves hold some of these identities that are unsafe and marginalized mm-hmm. in, you know, men's sports. And therefore, you're trying, I hope. And and they, to some degree, are shaping a culture that is for people like the players. Uh, And there's so many queer women, depending on the sport. There's a ton of black women. Um, These are the demographics and, you know, women in general, right? Those are the demographics that are not necessarily welcome in men's sports. They're not the demographics that the players are generally, like, nice to in men's sports. And I mean, if we want to go to a capitalistic framework too, I also think there's, it's a business strategy to be like, this is a place for you, the people who don't see yourself catered to by this other league. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because, 
you know, we are queer friendly and we're going to have a pride night and we're going to be trans inclusive and we're going to do all of the social justice commitment. I believe that comes from a place from the players that it's legitimate. But also if you're going to look larger from like a basketball ops standpoint and a business standpoint, I think it's also it's smart. You are speaking to who you know your fan base is and drawing in fans that may be disillusioned with other aspects of sport. Um, I think it's a smart business strategy, but I don't, I think that if it absolutely wasn't one that was working for them, the league, the larger like league itself wouldn't invest and buy in as much as it had, even if the individual players continued to like make statements in like the locker room and on their social media. Yeah. Yeah. That, no, that's a great. That's a great answer. That, make, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, well, we're, we're going to, you know, dive back into this, but, but before we do, I do want to circle back to that um, kind of process question with respect to writing, because we don't often have the chance to, to talk to someone who, you know, you're such a, you're such a prolific writer and, um, and we're, and this is something we will at, at the end really dive into, but, um, you know, you work on a freelance basis, which, uh, means that I think you have, um, I mean, that's a complicated question. So I don't, I don't want to, like, what I mean to say is the question of freelance work versus staff work um, and whether the freelance equals freedom in the way that it's like, I think in a, a neoliberal sense, we're meant to think, oh yeah, you're free to work for yourself. You're your own boss. What a utopian thing, um, which it is obviously not in a lot of ways. Um, but nonetheless, perhaps you have more agency than some when it comes to thinking through, you know, what kind of projects you want to pursue um, or what kind of pieces you want to pitch. So I, I'd be thrilled if you would, wouldn't mind taking us through a little bit what you are thinking about when you're pitching or drafting a piece, what your process looks like, you know, just sort of the nuts and bolts of being a writer. Yeah, I think I have some level of freedom in terms of, in general, I do not have to write stories that I don't want to write. Um, I do receive assignments sometimes. Editors will email me and say, I have this story I would like written, and I think you would be great for it. Um, are you available or interested in writing this? And I can say no. Um, again, though, that's a loaded no, because it's like, what does my income look like this month? When's the last time a publication actually sent a check? Um, things like yeah. that have yeah. to go into consideration, because that's the thing. The difference between being a staff writer and a freelancer is that I don't have a salary and I don't have benefits. And when I'm not producing writing, I'm not making any money. So if I haven't written, even if I'm researching, like sometimes I'm researching for a piece for months, um, but I'm not getting paid for any of that research until my piece publishes. And even then I'm getting a per word rate, which doesn't count all the hours that went into like research and interviews and all of that. So I do think I'm in a different position now in that I do not have to hustle as hard because my rate that people are willing to pay me to write is much higher um, than it was when I started out. And so when I do file a piece, that money lasts longer for me. Um, but my process at this point, I think what I struggle a little bit with is straddling the line between feeling like I need to hustle and write things that are relevant to like the current news or, you know, <clears throat> what's going on in the world. And the, the news cycle moves very fast. Um, and that's what can really get exhausting. 
but balancing things like that with larger features, which is really what I love to write and is my bread and butter, I think. Um, and trying to find time to do those, which are a much slower process, um, while still making sure that I have some sort of like regular income coming in. Um, but it's hard. I've been, I've had writer's block for a couple months now. And luckily, you know, editors are pretty understanding if you're just like forthcoming with them about that. And I've had a bunch of deadlines like pushed. But it's really hard and definitely creates this sense of like panic, particularly in like scarcity mindset freelance culture of, oh, God, how much longer can I not write? Like how much longer is the money I have saved in my bank account going to cover my expenses if I can't produce something? I forget I wrote a book this year. Like that's a lot of words. <laughs> yeah. like, yes. I've just written a lot this year. Um, but in terms of like how I think about stories. I don't know. I think often what what's happening for me is that I'm looking at the way we are talking about certain things and I'm noticing what we're not talking about. And I have questions about that. And so I start to kind of poke around and often when I pitch a story, I have some idea of the angle of what it's going to be, but I try not to be too married to what I think the piece is going to look like because I really like give it the room to kind of change shape as I talk to people who know more about me, my sources, and I do research and I try to let that guide my reporting as well. And often like I can look at something and be like, oh, I think there's a gap here and I want to try to fill it. But then I call an expert who literally thinks about this thing all the time. And I'll be like, what do you think people are like not reporting about this or what's being missed and they know exactly they will tell me exactly what it is that's being missed and what I should be looking at and so that's you know really an important part of the process too I think yeah well just to just to continue down this road um so as you were just pointing out you, you've also tweeted about the fact that you said you've called you know hustle culture is exhausting you've pointed out and shown how ex exploitative this industry is based on what you have been paid uh the fact that you pointed out that you have not been given an interview for a staff position which is astounding um you know we've talked to other writers about the collapse of journalism and issues with sports media especially um and it, you know there's clearly there is a demand for the writing that you do, kind of in the way that you pointed out, right, that 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 the women's sports leagues are there's in a sense a market, right, for this other thing, this other approach to um, this other sort of ethical disposition to human beings and their identities that uh, isn't so kind of profoundly alienating. Um, well, that's true of the audience for reading work as well, right? That there are people who care about sports from the perspective of harm and the harm that sports inflicts upon people and seeing ways in which sport can be doing something different. Um, so, you know, if you're not getting those jobs and, and others like you aren't getting those jobs, it says something about the sports media complex itself um, and the challenges of doing the sort of critical work that you do when from the standpoint of the work, uh, from, excuse me, from the standpoint of the industry, that work is essentially diametrically opposed in a lot of ways to its project because the project is so exploitative and it is so harmful. 
would you be willing to share with us kind of any challenges or barriers you've experienced when it comes to getting your sport critical views printed for being the kind of journalist you are in an industry that doesn't necessarily want to be criticized? Yeah, well, I think my challenges are kind of like twofold. I think one, the fact that I focus predominantly on <clears throat> women's sports or trans folks in sports you know, I say sports and gender because I think that that's a really good like bucket to think about um, my work fitting into. But I think a lot of publications view that as like sort of niche. So sports publications view me as like a women's interest writer because I happen to write about women. And so they may commission me, but they're not going to commission me every month mm. um, because they're, they think, oh, well, our readers just read this thing about you. And so they're not going to be interested or, or from you. And so they're not going to be interested in something else for another six months, at least once a year. Right. And then right. women's publications view me as a sports writer and wrongly, uh, I would say this is also kind of sexist, um, assume that their writers are not interested in sport. And so they do the same thing. They'll commission something, but it's not something they want to cover regularly because they don't feel that their audience cares about it. But they also don't publish those stories, so they're not giving their audience a chance to care about it or to get invested in it. They run one story, and if it doesn't do as well as they want, they're like, well, see, our audience doesn't care about this. And I think everyone can care about sports if you are framing it in a way that makes sense uh, to them and that they're invested in. And I firmly believe that. I kind of consider myself a sports writer for people who think they don't like sports or think they don't care about sports. And I think a lot of people don't think they don't care about sports because they've never seen sports framed in a way that appeals to them or includes them. And I really try to do that in my writing. And so I think it's considered pretty niche, right? Particularly like trans athletes, like, oh, you know, we've heard about them once. You've definitely heard about all of them. <laughs> right. And yep. also, I think that goes in line with what we see in mainstream media and the way trans issues are covered in general. Um, we I mean, just this week, we saw the New York Times book review commission, like a well-known anti-trans journalist to review a horribly transphobic book in the New York Times and give it a favorable review. And they are still paying cis people to write about trans people as if we're like aliens who can't speak for ourselves. Um, and when they do run stories about trans folks, often we're like both sidesing some issue that's mm, really like mm -hmm. human rights. <laughs> kind of like, yeah. And so it's hard to break in there as a trans writer who's trying to work full time. And there's so few trans writers that are fully employed anywhere, let alone in sport. Um, so there's that. But then there's the other piece where sometimes, yeah, the work I'm doing is not work that people want to be printing. I have a story that I still haven't placed that <clears throat> looks at like a relatively large like company within the sports world and kind of digs into its business practices and stuff. And I've had trouble placing it and I didn't really know why, cause it's timely for a lot of reasons. And, you know, one publication was like, well, we like the story, but we're worried because we think someone who like 
is, owns that business also has like a stake in our publication. And so these are conflicts that just, they come up when you're criticizing people. And I think it's the same reason that some publications or writers do what, you know, is probably affectionately known as access journalism, where you're afraid to criticize a league or a player because then you lose access to that player uh, or you lose access to that league or they get pissed at you and don't want to talk to you. And so that's where you get a lot of like fluff pieces that come in. Um, and so I, these are all things that I'm up against, but like you said, like, I think there's a demand for my work. The challenge is convincing the people behind the scenes that there is, because often the people who are behind the scenes, uh, and have like commissioning power and hiring power are like white cis men. And they think very specifically about what they think people want to read because they're thinking about what they want to read. Um, and that's something I'm up against, honestly, a lot. And even when I am commissioned by people like that, I have very recently this year, I pulled a piece because I was so like horrified with the direction that the editor kept wanting to take the piece, even after we'd had long phone conversations about not falling into the same like narrative traps around trans reporting that a lot of people do. And I like walked away from that story. I've had to explain they, them pronouns to editors to the point that I've had to be like, you keep saying it's confusing when my subject uses they, them pronouns, but do you understand that I use they, them pronouns? Mm -hmm. And what you are saying every time you argue with me about this is that my identity is confusing and invalid. Like this is mm -hmm. not, we are not like, I'm not writing about these like hypothetical, like thought experiments. Like we're people, I'm a person who's directly impacted too. And I just think it's so outside the framework that most of the people who are like hiring and commissioning stories just like have in their daily lives that they don't even realize why it's important. Absolutely. I mean, you just hit on so many really important points here, both in terms of like access journalism, which we've talked about with other people. Um, and I think to just kind of one uh, comment that you made that I kind of rung some bells for me when you're saying how sort of like women's um, publications say that, you know, like our readers are not interested in sports, you know, either because we've already had one piece from you or we've had a prior piece on sports and people were not interested. And like, that's the same argument, the same sexist argument that people made in advance of and after Title IX, that like women were not interested in sports and therefore why are we spending so much time and money when we know we have lots of men interested in sports? So it's 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 sad to kind of see that argument being used in, in lots of different ways when if the door isn't open to people and as you said, presented in a way that um, is more appealing and maybe aligns with what they've experienced, right? That's gonna bring in more readers. I mean, that's that that seems to be how sort of writing and, and journalism works. Um, so I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I always like kind of said my dream would be to convince a, a women's focused, you know, publication that they need a sports writer on staff. <laughs> um, there's so much untapped like stuff there. And I've always been really surprised that even the ones that focus on like women in the workplace, didn't want more sports content from like women who are in the broadcast booth or like women um, who are, you know, hosting different 
you know, sports related shows or officiating or whatever. They just seem like such workplace stories to me. And like, even if you want to frame it with your girl boss feminism of like badass women doing things, like, why not? Like, why, like, why can't that be the window to like introduce these careers and these other like realities to readers? Um, Because I think that's the thing is like, I covered girls in baseball for a very long time. Um, I still do sometimes, but there was like two years where it was like almost my entire beat, girls and women in baseball. And like, when you talk to young girls who play baseball, often they're like, I didn't know that there were any women who umpire. I didn't know. And there are, right? Like, they're like, I didn't see this. I didn't know this. Or like, you know, older women who have played who say that. And it's like, that's because no one's talking about it. And I think, yeah, I just think there's so much untapped potential for audiences for sports stories that people are just like afraid to touch because I think sports is seen as like a guy thing or it seems like frivolous which is funny because like we cover reality tv which I don't personally think like anything is that frivolous I think you can critically critique and examine anything so -hmm. when I say reality tv actually I'm working on like an in-depth essay about like reality tv culture because I'm a nerd but like, awesome, we could compare that, right? And say like, that mm. could be seen as frivolous too, right? It's like, what do we decide is the frivolous thing that we're willing to cover? Absolutely. And and so let's dive into some of your pieces. Um, and there's so many that, that we could talk about. So we selected a few, but we absolutely um, encourage listeners to, to um, go to their website, which again, we will be linking and really check out the extent of uh, Brittany's work because it is just truly amazing. And, and one piece that um, really demonstrated sort of how far, kind of talking about sports journalists and sports commentators, one piece that really showed how far commentators and journalists still need to go was your analysis and vice this past June titled, Why Can't WNBA Broadcasters Get the Players' Names Right? And as you pointed out in the piece, there are only 144 names in the WNBA, and the league provides, uh, it, it seems to be really thorough pronunciation guides. And yet, surprise, surprise, broadcasters seem to mainly mispronounce Black and other players of color's names, as well as international players' names. And and this seems like pretty obvious racism and bigotry from our perspective. Now, could you walk us through the implications of when a broadcaster mispronounces a player's name in the league? Um, you, you pointed out in the piece the issues with the league's piecemeal coverage and the fact that there's no central training mechanism for broadcasters. Um, so you could kind of walk us through some of these implications when it happens. Yeah, it's such a like basic sign of respect, I think, to get somebody's name right, whether you're a broadcaster or not, just like in general, right? Like pronouncing someone's name is a basic sign of respect. Mm-hmm. And women's sports often don't get the respect that men's sports do and I think the degree to which WNBA players names are mispronounced is like a huge glaring example of that the basic too is for a broadcaster I don't want to be like you have one job because analysts and broadcasters have these incredibly tough jobs they prepare for games they have to read you know scouting reports on all the players know how to say their names identify them on the court um and often what uh, I don't know if if all viewers know this but they often have a little bug in their ear giving them those stats mid-game that you hear them Mm -hmm. spitting out so they're paying attention to a lot of things it's not an easy job but 
the a main component of their job is getting players' names correctly, correct, identifying them, saying them right. It's like basic broadcasting 101. Um, and so obviously there are mistakes that get made, but to the point that like teams are having to tweet, this is how you say our players' names. Players mm-hmm. are taking to Twitter after a game to be like, like Arike Agumbawale from the Dallas Wings played in uh, New York this season. And the in-game announcer who every time, you know, someone makes a basket, they say over the the speakers in the arena, like who it was, the Arike Agumbawale's name was mispronounced the entire game. Like, and in this case, it's not on TV, so she can hear it every single time it's said. And she took to Twitter afterwards to, to be like, this is not okay. And so there's a lot of maybe reasons that this could happen, but I think in general, um, even on the WNBA's own app, they have these like, so for people that don't watch WNBA on their league pass, they don't stream commercials during commercial breaks. They scream like screen like highlight packages and stuff that somebody affiliated with either the league or with, um, you know, NBA TV who makes the app probably puts together. And they have this announcer who says like the top five plays, right? And he's not even saying players' names correctly. And this is on a product put out by the league. and. To me, it speaks to a lack of care. Um, I don't know if they think that people aren't going to notice, but it is incredibly <clears throat> like if you as a league don't care enough to get your players' names correctly, how can you expect other people to care enough to get players' names correctly? And it's just this like self perpetuating cycle of disrespect. Um, and that. Yes, it also happens much more frequently to black players and other players of color and international players. And you cannot separate that as well. Like if people are out here saying Sabrina Ionescu's name, they can say Enrique Gumbawale. Like Mm -hmm. it is so tied also to racism in media coverage in that Sabrina is in, you know, her second year in the league and she was out her first year with most of an injury. and. She doesn't even start a lot of games. She comes off the bench. There have been like Benija Laney, who's her teammate, has been a star for the New York Liberty. And yet everything the league and the team puts out has Sabrina's face on it. And she's, you know, Sabrina is white. And who who are the players we're getting exposed to in media too? And those are the names we are familiar with and know how to say. And so it's all kind of like feeding in on itself. Absolutely. And and one thing that you, you started to tease out a little bit, uh, but I'd love to hear more about is the like in the impact that it can have on players and, and the additional more about the additional labor that it ends up demanding of the players and response. Yeah, it's so frustrating and disheartening, like especially in the case of Arike, who had to hear her name mispronounced in a game. The frustration, the disrespect, you're feeling like I talked to fans who were at the game and you could literally, they all said like <clears throat> towards the end of the game, you could see her just like visibly sighing on the sidelines when it happened or 
just shaking her head. Um, but it is, it is, it is labor. It is emotional labor to have to take to Twitter after a game and say like Dijon A. Carrington, who's on the Connecticut Sun, be like, my name is not Dijon, like the mustard, like that is not my name. Um, so it also just, yes, it puts more and there's like emotional impacts to having your name mispronounced all the time the, and the disrespect, it can affect people's self-confidence. Um, it can take them out of the game that they're supposed to be playing and make it hard to focus. Um, a player should not have to be worried about whether or not their name is being said correctly while they're, you know, in the middle of a game. Yeah. Well, and picking up on that, because what you're highlighting here, and it's a theme in your work, it, the humanity of athletes, mm-hmm. right? The, the, we're talk- too often in, in sport broadly, we have this process of dehumanization where from the standpoint of fans and certainly from, you know, the corporate entities that players work for, they become just these almost vicarious vessels or these, you know, um, the, these workers who can produce a commodity spectacle, but their value lies in that spectacle they produce or in the emotion that they can produce for fans. Um, but we don't think enough about the fact that these are people and these are people who are going through the experiences that other people are going through at work. And they're dealing with the kinds of questions around identity that other people are also dealing with. But we don't give athletes kind of the same amount of, you know, I don't know, the, the same benefit of the doubt, even when it comes to their humanity or thinking through what they deserve. And that that's a crucial part of an incredible piece you wrote for Sports Illustrated this summer about non-binary athletes and the experiences they have in sport. Um, and one of the things which I think really connects with what we're talking about here is in, in speaking about the experience of Laisha Clarendon, um, you, you talked about or you quoted, in fact, Clarendon on some of the questions that came up with dealing with top surgery. And so what Clarendon said in your piece was, quote, what will the recovery look like and how will it impact my 2021 season? The league and my team have a right to know a lot about my body because it affects my play. But is there anything personal that the league can't ask me about? I know I'm going to publicly talk about my top surgery, but what if another player has top or bottom surgery and doesn't want to share that with their team or the public? If the league doesn't support me, can I be fired? I mean, these are obviously, that's obviously the end of the quote, these are obviously critical questions um, and very human questions to be dealing with in this situation. Could you walk us through um, how having to think about these things could impact a player's mental health, their ability to play, their financial stability? you know, all of the implications that come with it. Yeah. And this is something for me, like this was a story about non-binary athletes specifically, right? But when I'm writing generally about trans athletes, I think that so much coverage of trans athletes is so incredibly dehumanizing to come back to that point Mm -hmm. you made. And you'll often see it in my work where I almost talk directly to the audience and say like, we could get bogged down in discussions of biology and hormones and all of this stuff. But when we do that, what we're losing is that there's a person at the heart of this. And we are more than our chromosomes or whatever hormones are in our body or whatever genitalia are like those things are actually pretty irrelevant to the conversation, even around sport, like 90% of the time. And including in this 
piece, I opened that piece with discussion of Lasia considering top surgery. And a lot of cis journalists do not know that it is considered bad form to open a piece about a trans person talking about their body and their medical transition. And because so many, like when you write about trans people for a cis audience, the assumption is that the body is a spectacle and it is the only thing people are interested in hearing about. And they want the like grotesque detail of like, what parts we have and like whether you know there's like a free kind of like lens this um that I think a lot of cis people intentionally or not bring to trans stories where the transition is the story and they want to know all the details Mm -hmm. and I opened with these discussions about Lasia considering top surgery very intentionally, but I spoke to the audience about why I did it. I just put it in the text. This is considered bad form, but here's why I'm doing it. Because Elijah Clarendon's a professional athlete, and the decisions that he's making about his body are going to impact his ability to do his job and potentially his ability to stay employed. And so these questions are central to the larger questions that I'm going to be asking in this piece about what athletes who are already playing in professional sports leagues who have to think about their own gender and whether or not any aspect of medical transition is like something that they want to pursue. They are constrained by even thinking about the potentiality of that by the fact that the players that I spoke to in my piece were in women's leagues. And when your job and your livelihood and your career and everything you've worked for your entire life hinges on being able to like play in this very gendered league sometimes it actually limits even the ability to dream about where your gender could go or what you would want if there was no constraints placed on it you know even the idea of starting testosterone may not even be a thing that people allow themselves to think about because of the implications of what it could mean for them personally as athletes and workers right um and so i think all of this is really encapsulated by Lasia Clarendon talking to me about here's the questions that I wrestled with before deciding whether or not I was going to get top surgery, whether I could get top surgery. And, you know, they said it was so necessary to my mental health as an athlete. And I think like when I am happy and comfortable and safe in my body, when my mental health is in order, I'm a better athlete on the court too. And mental health and physical performance are not completely unrelated. Mm -hmm. So Lasia being able to take care of their body um, in the way that top surgery would allow them to would, in, you know, their mind, allow them to also perform better on the court. And they're having the best season of their career. She's like you know, she was waved by the Liberty and, and picked up by the Lynx and has really been the leader on that Lynx team and turned the entire season around for them. And so I think maybe, that you know, there's something to be said there um, for what a, a difference it makes. And, you know, he said to me when I was speaking to him, like, I was, I decided I was going to do it because I needed to do it. And if that meant I had to fight my union, which, you know, he didn't end up having to, I give this means I need to fight for my ability to like fight the league and like stay in the league I'll do it 
but I don't want to have to. But I need to know those questions, right? Like looking up anti-discrimination law in the state that he's playing in before, you know, making that decision. So... Can you um, can you just clarify also for us what that fight with the union might have been about? So what in the WNBA's collective bargaining agreement, um, which actually Leija Clarendon is the vice president of the WNBA's player association. So she was heavily involved in those negotiations and discussions for their new CBA, which was unveiled in right before the 2020 season. And it's incredible. But it says pretty close to the top that players in the W are are women. Um, Mm. And so I'm curious to see if and how that might change because the league has been fully supportive of Lasia up to this point. Do I know what would happen if Lasia thought, well, I want to take even a low dose of testosterone? I don't know. And or if another player thinks, but Lasia is absolutely not the only trans player in the WNBA, nor are they the first. Uh, They're just the first that we know about. And both the director of the WNBA Players Association and Leja in separate interviews indicated that there are more in the league. Um, And so Leja's not the only one. They're just being, you know, open about it. But everything that that they're having to fight for in the conversations that are having to fall on their shoulders to start are not just for themselves. They're going to be impacting, you know, other players, whether we publicly know that or not. Um, and so the, the question, right. Is like, if I'm not a woman, can I still play in this league? If I have surgery to remove my breasts, can I still play in this league? And of course, then it was like, well, if I had breast cancer and I had a mastectomy, they'd have to let me play. Mm-hmm. And if I got mm-hmm. implants for aesthetic reasons, they'd have to let me play. So this isn't different, right? But the fact that these are the questions that are having to be considered um, just to get like what can in some cases be a life-saving or life-changing like medical surgery for trans folks yeah. is just so many things that cis players just do not have to think about when they go to work. Absolutely. And there's something that you said at the beginning of the answer that I want to return to sort of when you're talking about how um, many, many, many people really fetish, like they dehumanize trans and non-binary athletes. And they really like by this hyper focus on the body and biology and um, the changes that uh, people may be going through and really like fetishizing it. Um, and, and I had a, we had an interesting conversation. Um, I think it was episode 71 with, um, uh, a researcher, Abby Barras and a transgender rugby player. And Abby talked about in her research, this idea of mundane transphobia. And she was looking at a documentary that, uh, tennis player Martina Navratilova did, um, again, very both sides, uh, really horrific documentary, it sounded like. And it was, again, hyper-focused on on the, on the athletes' bodies and what they were doing or not doing with them. And sort of how, like you said, very how gross and dehumanizing that is. And I think really the way that you teased out the impact of having to ask all these questions and think through them. I mean, I, I can't imagine sort of how potentially um, draining that might be. And then it's also clear that Clarendon really thought about how 
their decision might be impacting other people. For example, if another player, you know, has a surgery and doesn't want to share that, how is that going to go over? I mean, really just showing how he is thinking about, you know, it, it not just about them, but about so many other people. And I, and it, that's just something I really appreciated about that piece. Yeah. And I think something I take great pains to do in my work is the trans person is not the problem. The decisions mm-hmm. that the trans people person is like having to make about whether it's their body or just participation in sport is not the problem. The problem is that the system is not designed for people like them. So the problem is that they are trying to fit into a larger system that was not built for them. And I try to keep that at the forefront of my mind all the time. Because when you even as a trans person who like, I know that but when I'm reading other coverage and thinking about research and stuff and so much of mainstream coverage really is is not done well and it's from this very like cis framework um I really have to like unlearn that too and unpack that Mm -hmm. too when I'm writing because often the trans the fact that the trans person wants to participate at all is viewed as the problem in most writing about trans athletes and that's the wrong framing that we're asking the wrong Mm -hmm. questions if that's how we frame it similarly with conversations about fairness what we talk Mm -hmm. about is what would be fair to the cis athletes who have to compete against this trans person and how do the cis athletes feel about this trans person being allowed to compete with them and again those are the wrong questions we should be center we should be um, centering the most marginalized person in this conversation and these are the trans Mm -hmm. athletes so instead of asking how do cis athletes feel about this person being included? We should be asking how does the trans person feel about being excluded and how can we minimize the harm being done to them every time their existence and participation is questioned just by the fact that they like want to step on the track or step on the field. And um, so this is like constantly my work is trying to kind of reframe the conversation away from trans people in sport are a problem that we need to solve and sport is a is a problem that is hindering trans people from being included and it's sport that needs to change absolutely so so well said and and really that's a great segue to the next question to dive even further into this piece is how in the case of Clarendon there was a coordinated at least it seemed to be very coordinated PR strategy by which they and their team and the league made a supportive and inclusive announcement and sort of how that can be helpful for athletes. So could you walk us sort of explain what was done and by whom in Clarendon's case and the impact of their collective efforts to support him? Yeah. And this is a, this is a really interesting thing to think about. And part of where this came from actually, and the reason I started thinking about it was I, I talked to Harrison Brown who played in the NWHL, um, which just changed their name um, to the Professional Hockey Federation. But Harrison um, is a trans man, and he socially transitioned while playing in the NWHL. And as a result of him socially transitioning, uh, the league was the first professional league to put a trans inclusion policy in place. And I talked to Harrison for this story, and he had to retire from hockey because he wanted to start uh, hormones. He wanted to go on testosterone. And we do not have to get into this here, but um, it's important to know that in most women's divisions and women's sports, the second you are taking any testosterone that is not 
created by your body, you're considered to be doping. Um, and in some cases, you know, the testosterone that is produced by your body is deemed to be too much. Um, but <laughs> in Harrison's case, he wanted to start, you know, hormone replacement therapy and he had to retire. And I a asked him, would you still be playing if you could? And he said, yes, which I think was really, really telling. Um, but the other piece was me saying, what do you think the league did well in supporting you? And what did they miss? You were the first to do this, right? And so there was no blueprint. And his thing was, I think that PR tried really, really hard to support me to the best of their ability. And I think they were just totally unprepared to do it. They had press conferences to announce this and they made Harrison available for media requests um, if Harrison wanted to participate. But Harrison often got asked these really intrusive questions about his body, kind of like we just talked about and really just like inappropriate things. And he's like, I wish there had been like a off limits questions list that could have been sent to these journalists or um, I wish there had just been like a more streamlined approach to this and I think it's really piecemeal because when you look at Quinn in the uh, National Women's Soccer League who also came out as non-binary last year like the social media accounts for their team the OL Reign and the NWSL itself did not address Quinn's announcement um Mm -hmm. at all for like months it came on Quinn's social media profile and I talked to the team about that and that was Quinn's personal choice. You know, they felt like this was an individual thing, but what's really interesting, if you look over the course of the past like year or so, their team, the OL Reign has really done a great job of adding pronouns to every single player and coach on their website. Um, Making sure that Quinn's not the only one whose pronouns are being highlighted. They are making graphics with gender neutral language to talk about their athletes um this is these are things again that unfortunately had to be pushed or spearheaded by the trans player coming out it puts a lot on that person's you know shoulders um but i think it shows and it it's a good example of how maybe the league or the team thinking that this is an individual thing and we'll leave it up to the player and that's great because I think the player should have agency over how that's announced. But I think there's a lot of like stuff that can go wrong in the media when there's not a centralized narrative and centralized language um, being used around people. And I think it also says a lot when a team is expressing support because then there's no question of does this person belong here because the team and the league are saying we're so proud of this person and we unequivocally support them, which is what happened in Leja's case. Um but it must be noted how much work Leja Clarendon did on the back end to get mm-hmm. all of that in place before they made their announcement um, and how much real like advocacy had to be done on their end to get to a place where the league and the team had like a relatively coordinated effort of statements and statements of support that went out when Leja announced. Yeah. Well, okay. You, you said this before. Um, and I think it really bears repeating, but to build on what you've just been saying, 
we need to put vulnerable people first, right? Not sports. That's an issue here in the context of the experience of trans people. It's frankly an experience in a lot of other contexts in sport as well. Um, but all too often, the general media discourse, um, the attitudes of participants in sport, it's always about like sort of the norms of sport, the institution of sport is prioritized over the harm that it causes people, right? It's like completely losing sight of the purpose of the whole enterprise. And in the Sports Illustrated piece on Clarendon, Clarendon, excuse me, um, Chris Mosier is quoted as saying that sports are not safe for trans people. Um, and I mean, this seems to be proven again and again with all the horrific anti-trans bills and laws across the United States. I mean, this question couldn't be bigger, but how does sport need to be changed or recreated in order to make it safe for trans and non-binary athletes to participate and be themselves? I mean, this is just the question my entire career is is built to try to answer, right? It's no biggie. Um, yeah, I, exactly. No pressure, no pressure. And I like don't have a great answer. I have lots of thoughts. And sure, yeah. what I will say is that I think, and I'm working on a really large piece of, about sex segregation in sports and how and why um, we got to this place. And so it's something I've been thinking about a lot. But ultimately, we have to rethink the way sports are organized. Because even if you take trans and non-binary people out of the equation, intersex people still exist. Like biological yeah. sex is not a binary either. Absolutely. We, we miss that too often. Absolutely. Yep. And when like part of a lot of the, the struggles that athletes have had at some of the international levels around this like gender and sex testing aren't even trans people. Like it's mm -hmm. that there are natural, our bodies just naturally are different. There's not two sexes um, either, which is like taken as this like given that, yeah, there's two sexes. Yep. There's not. I mean, like literally right. the way sport is organized just is wrong. It doesn't even work if you even take trans and non-binary people out of the equation, but then you put them in and you just have a larger number of people that it's not working for. Right. I don't think that we are even close to being at a place where people are ready to blow that up. I don't mm -hmm. know if like when we'll get there or what it will take. I think that's ultimately what needs to happen. But I think right now we're engaging in like harm reduction essentially and trying to make the existing system work the best way that we can for trans and non-binary athletes, um, for intersex athletes, for anyone who is harmed you know, by this really binary sport organization. And I think we also lose sight of the fact um, that this, like, very aggressive and persistent, like, sex testing also impacts cis girls. We don't talk about that a lot. But um, even when you look at some of the anti-trans legislation that's been passed and some of it includes the right for like a genital exams of children yeah. playing yeah. like mm -hmm. school sports mm -hmm. on the basis that somebody might point to them and say, I don't think that's a girl. Right. Like, mm -hmm. and, and something that we don't talk about that often gets overlooked when we talk about these cases. If, if you look at Idaho, which was the first state to pass one of these bills banning trans kids from playing sports, specifically banning trans girls from playing girl sports, 
there was uh, an anonymous, a Jane Doe in that case who testified against the bill uh, when it was being considered. And I will note that that bill has since been blocked. The ACLU um, like sued the state and so it's not being enforced. But while that bill um, was, there was someone who testified against it and she was a cisgender Jane Doe who was a high school athlete in Idaho. And what she said was, if this bill passes, somebody could question my gender and I would have to go this, like this really intrusive exam. And I think I want so much more of that. I want to see cis women realize that all of our like freedom and liberation is tied up together. That what Mm -hmm. makes trans women and girls and trans people unsafe the policing of their womenhood, the policing of their gender is tied to the policing of cis women's gender and particularly black and brown cis women, you know, cis women or any woman who doesn't conform to these white Western feminized beauty ideals. um, Those are the people who are most directly impacted. And I really want to see the acknowledgement that these policies don't just harm trans people. They're like, they may harm trans people first, but they're also harming, you know, cis women too. It's like, you know, our, our freedom is, is tied up um, together. And I, I don't know if we'll be able to get to a place. And I think that that could, that could stump the whole movement because right now you have cis women being like, I don't want to compete against a man, you know, Mm -hmm. talking about Mm -hmm. the idea of competing against trans women. Um, but in reality, like our struggles um, are the same. And I, I think that that's something that really needs to be, you know, acknowledged. So I don't know, like we can say, I think that there's a way, and I propose this in my Sports Illustrated piece, to think about the intention of women's sports. Why does women's sports exist, particularly at a professional level? That's an easier one, I think, to look at. If you look at professional leagues, like, the NBA, for example, Major League Baseball, they don't actually have gender requirements. Um, there's nothing stopping, in theory, women from being drafted in and playing into you know any of those leagues. There has been a woman, and like I think it was the '70s, drafted into the NBA. Like it's possible. So if that's the case, like why do we have a women's league, right? Like what's the point of that if if they can theoretically play in the existing professional league? And it's that they weren't given those opportunities. They were being system like systematically denied opportunity to play professional sports. And so I think, and and the reason they were being denied was their gender. They were being marginalized based on their gender. And I think if you go back to that original intention of a women's league, you can expand it to fit anyone who's marginalized by gender and still be true to its original intent, even if people, you know, trans and non-binary people were not on the radar of the people who started these leagues. And I think it might give us some wiggle room and some real good harm reduction in the meantime, um, if people are willing to, you know, provide that that reading and intention to the leagues and would allow people like Leja and Quinn and um, all the other, you know, trans and non-binary athletes to remain in those leagues um, in a way that allows for their full participation. You know, I'm really glad that you brought up um, kind of the 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 issuers or the inclusion of how um, these anti-trans bills could potentially and in the past have impacted cis women. And it's one of those things where as a cis woman myself, I I don't want to say, what about us? You know, like I, I, I don't want um, 
I don't want, how do I say, if, if cis women are not the most vulnerable and they certainly are not in these circumstances, like I, I don't, I, I guess I'm kind of questioning how much to kind of center that perspective. But, but I think what you're pointing out is that like, again, like you said, these bills would harm all, everybody who identifies as a woman, and it just opens the door to sexual abuse. And lots of people have made this argument, this is not unique to me at all. And it just, it really boggles my mind that like, when we are still in the thralls of the massive, massive sexual abuse scandal in USA Gymnastics, like imagine if we were to give school officials and, and coaches and, and doctors and sort of whoever would be given the right to, to conduct these exams and give them the authority and the power to do so, like what that would do. And then because we'd be, I mean, of course, of course, the school sports would be implicated in this, then it's federal and state funding that's being given to do these really horrific genital exams. And so it just totally boggles my mind how much people leap, leap over this aspect of it. Um, so I'm really glad that you brought that up. Yeah, Joanna, this, this kind of surveillance is just inherently mass abuse. I mean, mm -hmm. there's just mm -hmm. no other way. Like, like the policy itself is abuse. It's not like it's being abused. It is abusive. There's no other yeah. way to look yeah. at it. Yeah. And I think, you know, in the case there's um, Nancy Hogshead McCarr. I don't know how you say um, mm -hmm. her last name. Sorry. I've only read it. Um, she has, uh, she's a, Olympic swimmer, um, former Olympic swimmer who has like dedicated her entire post-Olympic post swimming career to combating sexual abuse in sport. And mm -hmm. she's one of the people who's like leading like a woman's like women's sport policy working group that includes Martina Navratilova um, and several other mm -hmm. former Olympians who are trying to exclude trans girls from sport and who are advocating and testifying for these bills and these legislation that would in some cases require genital exams for children mm -hmm. and it's mind-boggling to me how somebody like that doesn't see like the blatant connection the, the connection between that and also just how someone who has you know dedicated her life and done a lot of great work around the issue of sexual abuse in sport doesn't see this as sexual abuse but I think it's a good example of how trans people even when they're kids just are not seen as fully human uh mm -hmm. and just are not seen as like people in the same way that we you know abuse as people it's just an incredibly again to use the word dehumanizing but like I think that's like the only word that fits Definitely. And, and Nathan and Derek and friends know I like rage tweet in the DMs about some of these people that you mentioned because the it's it's so enraging that they're I mean, amongst many things, you know, the door has been open to the two of them and then they're shutting it, the door behind them to harm other people. But then, you know, of course, if, if asked, you know, do you how do you feel about um uh, cis girls being given genital exams, they might say, oh, well, like, we don't want to harm cis girls, but then they're okay with the fact that trans children would be harmed, right? That, that's the sort of thing is that they would probably differentiate between who should and should not be harmed, which again, as you show, just shows a fundamental, as you talk about, just fundamental dehumanization um, and, and, and obviously very discriminatory and oppressive behavior. Um, but they, they have so much clout, right? They have so much clout for fighting against um, sexual abuse and sport, and then they've used that to essentially turn 
that oppression against other people, um, which is just really, it's really something else to behold. So uh, let's transition to your a different piece um, in Bitch Media about the hiring of known assaulters and or predators of women, uh, Jason Kidd and Chauncey Billups, over women coaches such as Becky Hammond um, in the NBA. And towards the end of the article, you wrote how, about how although hiring women isn't the entire answer, that by hiring women, and I'm quoting you, quote, perhaps it would force zero tolerance policies to actually be enforced for there to be real accountability for men who engage in inexcusable behavior. And perhaps that's why these jobs can continue to remain just out of reach for the well-qualified women who pursue them. Now, could you summarize for us what the hell has been going on with the NBA's hiring of these truly awful people? And, and we're throwing you these questions about kind of the extent of what to which things can be reformed. But, you know, if women were hired into these into these positions, to what extent could could the sort of bro culture even be sort of altered to to accommodate it and support them? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> there were like seven head coach openings in the NBA um, recently, which had the potential to really, I think, shift, right, the whole culture of the league. Um, and people are like, wow, there's all of these openings. One of them will finally go to Becky Hammond. Um, Don Staley's name was tossed around as, a, you know, potential as well. Whether or not she's interested, she would have been interested, you know, I don't know. But there was a lot of talk of, like, this is a great opportunity to finally, finally hire the first, you know, woman to head coach an NBA team. Um, and obviously that's not the only requirement. The women we're talking about here are fantastic coaches in their own right. But a lot of people believe the only reason, you know, someone like Becky Hammond hasn't been hired as a head coach somewhere is because she's a woman. Um, and so, uh, Jason Kidd, um, was hired by the Dallas Mavericks and as the head coach. And he um, has a history of domestic abuse. And then after I wrote my piece, um, Niran Fader's book on Giannis um, came out and had some stuff about Jason Kidd in it, um, I believe, um, being also a pretty abusive coach also. I don't know if any of you mm. saw that, but um, mm -hmm. that came out after my piece was written as well. Um, and then Chauncey Billups was hired by the Portland Trailblazers. He had um, a gang rape um, accusation uh, when he was a rookie um, in the NBA. And both teams, you know, were questioned about why they would hire someone with this background, um, particularly the, the Dallas Mavericks, who just are a couple of years removed from a pretty huge sexual harassment scandal within their organization. They put in a zero tolerance policy in place. Um, and, you know, the teams were like, well, we did our due diligence and we talked to everyone involved and we stand by our hire. Um, yeah. You have to trust us on that, right? right? I believe trust that Portland us. said something like mm -hmm. almost exactly like that. Yeah. Trust us. And then, of course, it turns out the the victim was like, well, they never contacted me. <laughs> right. Uh, right. 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 So and what what was revealed through reporting um, was that both of these men were friends with people who, you know, were high up in these organizations. Right. They had good relationships with these people. I think that's like the bro culture that I talk about. And it allows for their 
I'll just say like misdeeds, although I'd say like abuses and sexual assault are like pretty big misdeeds, but like yeah. mm-hmm. to be overlooked. And then when you look at the reason or, you know, excused away, and then you look at the reasons that people said Becky Hammond didn't get the job and none of them were like real reasons. They were like, people are worried about her ability to lead a team, which is like Ugh. coded sexism, right? Uh, no or <laughs> like other things that were, we could call them weaknesses, but that they were skills that she doesn't possess yet because she's never been allowed to be a head coach, right? They're the skills you develop only when someone finally says, here, take the reins, right? And so by not giving her a chance to do that, there's skills like that maybe she's always not going to have to the same extent as someone who's maybe had a head coaching role before. Um, But do you know what I kept thinking of when I was writing this story is, you know how like, in the era of like even like Mad Men and stuff, there yeah. was always these comments or how women on on the like the team, the workplace team, would be excluded from all of these really important conversations because they would happen like after hours at the strip yeah. club, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 And it's not the same, but it is. It is. It's these mm-hmm. men have these ongoing relationships and um. Their buddies who like get together to like I don't know play golf and smoke cigars. What do men do? I don't know. But like, <laughs> right? Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. This is what they're doing, and it creates this familiarity and this oh he's a good guy um, kind right. of mentality, and these very large misdeeds become easier to overlook or excuse away. Exactly. And it's shocking like what is considered disqualifying for a woman to get the job right like we're worried that she can't lead the team because she's never led one before even though she's been like systematically denied the ability to okay fine (laughs) and and by the way Brittany I want to just add to that like if you're talking about a CV line item for a potential NBA head coach being a leading assistant for Greg Popovich there's nothing better that's the that's the best CV line item you could have yes and also that men like Jason Kidd and Chauncey Billups, people will cite their like their basketball career as like proof <laughs> that they would be a good coach and because they have all this experience. Well, Becky Hammond like played in the WNBA and has a like Olympic medals. Like this is not someone who doesn't have the basketball yeah. resume either. She has it all. Um, but you know, there's just these like ridiculous reasons um, being put aside. And I don't know. I'm like, if she was hired, if someone like her was hired, if women were in these positions of power, like, would we see a culture shift happen? Maybe to some extent. But then you look at the Dallas Mavericks and like there there's like a woman. Is she the GM? I don't remember. Um, but she is a woman with a history of surviving domestic abuse and she's out here defending the hiring of Jason Kidd. So mm-hmm. it, it's not, I, I think you hear a lot of like hire women. And again, like I don't mm-hmm. like hire woman, women is not the answer either. It's not just going to fix a broken system. Okay. Well, let, let's pick up on that because actually the, the, the next thing we want to talk about was exactly in line with this. Um, in the MLB, Recently, we we've had a lot of talk uh, talk about whiteness and the MLB's all woman broadcasting crew uh, this past summer. And you wrote a piece titled "Progress for Whom," where you explored how it was really an affair of white feminism. You wrote, quoting you, "Progress for some women is not actually progress. By upholding patterns of white supremacy, 
the same women continue to be systematically excluded from opportunities, something that is true in workplaces across the board. It's why diversity cannot just mean white women. What do you think might be preventing these white women themselves from demanding more in terms of diversity and like a more radical notion of diversity, right? Because I mean, how these organizations often employ diversity. We have to be, I think, really careful how we use a word like that, right? Like we, we're at a moment where diversity is deployed tokenistically, right? Or in order to kind of put a, fa a more amenable face on institutions that continue to be fundamentally discriminatory in the most profound ways. Um, how... How do we get beyond that to a, a much more radical notion of diversity, I guess, is what I'm trying to ask. Yeah, no, this is such a like sticky and complicated topic, but I think research does show that white women are the first people to be helped by whether it's like things like, you know, diversity initiatives, affirmative action, things like that, like white women. And I think we it's because when we look, you know, at racism and anti-blackness like white women are like the most palatable right they're women but they're still white and the ways in which women have upheld um white supremacy and often have chosen racial solidarity over gender solidarity this is like very well documented when we talk about like research and and patterns and um in society right and when you add to that that women which includes white women have been historically marginalized in the workplace and especially in sports. You have a group of women who see themselves as the, like, a group of people, I'll say, who see themselves as, like, the most marginalized or who are lacking the opportunities. And I think you hear a lot of, like, but women don't get jobs in sports either. It's not about race, right? Or um, it's so hard for women to break in at all. And like, here I am and I did it. And in that case, they don't see the opportunities that they're being afforded that other women, women of color are not um, because they're so focused on how hard it was already for them as women. Um, and so I think it's it gets really complicated in terms of, like on a personal level, when when white women are like, but I had to fight to be here, like mm -hmm. um, it makes it hard to see the ways in which you're still privileged because you don't feel privileged when you are the only woman hired at your publication and you're going into locker rooms and getting sexually harassed by the athletes. Like you don't feel privileged <laughs> when you're in that situation. Um, you really, I think, focus on the ways in which you're you're marginalized um rather than the ways in which you're privileged but i mean i think that it's really important for you know i'm i'm white i am not a woman but i'm constantly trying to be aware of what opportunities i'm getting that other people are not and i think you know you asked me the question of what might be preventing white women from demanding this and like how can that begin to change and the way it's going to change is being like oh cool thanks for inviting me to your panel who else is on it and mm -hmm. if there's only like one woman of color or like no women of color to be like 
I don't think I can do this. Here's why. And here's three names of people that I think you should ask instead. Or it's what I do when I'm assigned a piece that I think somebody else would be better to write. I'm a freelancer and I need the money. And also, I would rather give the piece to somebody who's going to do a better job with the piece and deserves the byline. And so I will. Often I turn down stories and I say, "Here, thank you for thinking of me. Here's why I can't take it. Here's three people that I think you could ask to write it and they would be great. Um, but until white women don't like continue to see themselves as the biggest victims because again mm-hmm. there is in society like women white women in particular are often like in the role of victims um like we're not gonna see that begin to shift at all absolutely and just to kind of I mean there's <clears throat> there's so many examples of of white women doing this and to kind of throw I mean we have Rachel Nichols that's come out over the last year and then um, this is something I bring up a lot in the podcast, so listeners may be tired of hearing about it, but I, I was a swimmer, so USA Swimming is something that I pay attention to, even though it's you know not as well known. And if you look, and I know that looking at sort of staff websites with pictures and names doesn't tell the whole picture, um, but if we sort of take that as um, looking at the website as sort of the, the, the public face that they are presenting to the world about the extent of their diversity or not... They have something like 71 people working for USA Swimming. I think like 60 or 61 people have their pictures uploaded to the website. And out of the 61, something like 32 or 33 people seem to be presenting as as white women. Again, seem to be because it's not totally clear, which is over half. And then they have something like 22 white men and then like one, literally one black woman, I think two black men. Um, I think there are maybe um, three um, other brown people, right? So the numbers are just really like interesting and astounding. And, and for an organization like many who has this, you know, huge history, not only of sexual abuse that they still have not dealt with, but then also, I mean, swimming as a sport is so entrenched in white supremacy to the point where it's literally killed people for centuries. Um, you know, it just, again, shows how, white women by focusing on their own victimization, which in some case is, you know, sexual abuse and other things, but then not willing to look beyond and think, imagine what other people might be going through and sort of how to keep the door open. And as you, as you pointed out with your example, like invite other people to the table um, and really extend what has not always been extended to white women. I mean, that's what we really need to see be done. Um, and, and so far has not really been shown to be the case, um, sadly. Right. Or you'll see, um, you know, a woman of color be hired, but it's only one. Right. And so they're being mm-hmm. tokenized as well. Absolutely. Um, so Brittany, thank you so, so much for joining us today. This was such a wonderful conversation and, um, I really encourage listeners to check out their pieces. We will be linking, um, all of them, um, in, in the show notes to the episode. And we so are so looking forward to reading your book and just thank you so much for your time and generosity today. Yeah. Thanks for having me.